0: listeners, this is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. This is Ron Michael, president of the NLJSP, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first. Enjoy this podcast. In the 1960s, division was the word racism, patriotism, and foreign policy. Was the organized labor a forward-looking movement anymore? Did it still stand with the forces of social change? The emergent civil rights movement, by setting a high bar for those who would consider themselves true spokesmen for the underrepresented, tacitly challenged the position of unions as the leading agent of social change. People viewed unions as men in business suits controlling vast amounts of money and hanging around business elites. The perception was that unions had settled on protecting what they already had and no longer pushed for the amelioration of broader social iniquities. Although these opinions were not entirely accurate or fair, it was an opinion that continued until recent years. Some of the reasons for the perceived importance of unions was worker complacency made possible by a strong post-war economy. Technology, reducing the number of industrial jobs, new white-collar jobs, Taft, Hartley had excluded foremen and supervisors from labor law coverage. Of the ex- Approximately 22 million white-collar jobs in 1965 in America, only 10% belonged to unions. Automation also imparted unions as fewer employers were needed to maintain the same amount of production. As the age of steam and the coming age of electricity gave way to electronics and atomic energy, large corporations opened research divisions whose main purpose was to create new innovations that drove production and advanced corporate profitability but inevitably wreaked havoc with employees' lives and livelihoods. Many joined their fellow countrymen in looking forward to new labor-saving methods or anticipated the opportunity to learn new skills, but for older workers and the unskilled, in a time of rapid technological change, the fear of being replaced by a machine was all too real. While in some communities, businesses prepared to abandon older technology plants altogether in order to reconfigure with new automation elsewhere. Such pressures were often heard to deflect with traditional union negotiations. For automation came with the imprimatur of progress. It was difficult to make the argument that an employer should askew efficiency and decreased production costs in the interest of sustaining jobs that had become obsolete. Not that unions did not not try. The job of locomotive foreman was a position required as part of the operations of steam locomotives, but it had been made obsolete by the introduction of diesel locomotives beginning in the 1930s. As diesel replaced steam over the next 20 years, many firemen were lost. And yet in 1958, there were still 32,000 locomotive firemen working at an estimated annual cost to the railroads of $200 million. Employers wanted to reclassify or phase out the position accusing the unions of keeping the union position that was unnecessary and required little or no effort, the Firemen's Brotherhood countered that the position was for safety as they could watch and listen for problems such as derailments and collisions. Congress created a panel to resolve the issue and they came up with proposal that 90% of firemen's positions be phased out, but not without retaining long-time workers are offering comparable work and are generous severance packages. The rail unions balked challenging the elimination of 19,000 jobs and the power of Congress to order compulsory resolution of the dispute. The case went to the Supreme Court, which upheld the panel's ruling. A walkout was threatened by the nation's five railway unions. Only the direct involvement of President Johnson broke the stalemate. The rail unions accepting, in principle, the end of fireman's position in exchange for improved working conditions and the promise that the transition would be phased in gradually. Strikes in the early 1960s was as low as during the era of the no-strike pledge of the Second World War. But when strikes did occur, as they did in the printing trades among butchers in aviation and aerospace and in marine-related work, they tended to involve issues of displacement due to automation, retraining programs, job security, severance packages, and bonuses for early retirement. Large firms such as General Motors and the Armor Packing Company tried to preempt the difficulty with extensive worker retraining programs and various states made similar efforts. The federal government had began addressing the crisis in 1954 with the formation of the Office of Manpower Administration, an effort that carried over into the new frontier era culminating in the Manpower Development and Training Act of 1962, which assigned $35 million to assist technology-displaced workers. The attention to so sensitive a labor issue would bolster support from organized labor for both Kennedy and Johnson's administrations. The Voting Rights Act and Medicare, both enacted in 1965, And the Fair Housing Act of 1968 were aligned closely with labor's own historic concerns for the fundamental economic and social vitality of working people. Especially meaningful was the breakthrough Equal Employment Opportunity Act, part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which laid assault to discrimination in the workplace and made $1 billion available specifically to develop young people's work skills for jobs created by new technology. Surely the most emotionally compelling part of Johnson's program was his War on Poverty, which sought to address directly the crisis outlined by Harrington, that amid the tremendous affluence of American life at mid-century, pockets of extreme poverty still existed a neglected population Harrington called the invisible poor. Latino farm workers in the fertile agricultural valleys of California were among those Americans struggling fiercely to become less invisible, historically among the country's most neglected laborers. The farm workers sought to win the right to organize and bargain collectively from the state's powerful growers. Seasonal fruit and vegetable picking stoop labor, asked, it was known, had not been included in the collective bargaining regime of the New Deal because Southerners in Congress had influenced legislation creating both the Wagner Act and Social Security to exclude agricultural and domestic labor, which at the time employed half of all African American workers. Three decades later, paying conditions for migrant workers remained abysmal, For the better part of a century, regional crop and vineyard growers had successfully repulsed attempts at worker organization. Some of these growers had great power in part from their sheer size, some as large as 300,000 acres. Unlike elsewhere in America, where often consisted of many former small family farms, California's extensive farm holdings were created by Mexican and Spanish land grants that predated The U.S. possession of California as well as Gilded Age railroad land grabs that carved parts of the state into vast estates. They harvested tremendous annual tonnages of produce and required a steady supply of cheap labor. Chinese, Japanese, South Asians, Mexicans, and Filipinos who toiled in the fields. This kind of agricultural organization resulted in insular fiefdoms that controlled the lives of the people who lived and worked on them, and dominated local politics as well as the courts, sheriff's offices, clergy, and the press, a culture with no parallel outside the plantation south or the Colorado coal fields of the early nineteen hundreds. The growers fostered a caricature of them as carefree nomads who required such an a authoritarian structure so as to be able to repress their workers the thinking went like this you could not pay them a decent wage for they would drink it up right away as for providing them with shelter or a bed why they loved the open air and would rather die than take a bath if they fought this stereotyping the growers would not hesitate to use the law and the threat of official or vigilante violence to maintain control. In Southern California, there was a feeling of strong dislike for unions due to immigrant and transient job seekers. The wobbly free speech battles, the 1910 Los Angeles Times bombing, and the assault on a 1916 Preparedness Day parade in San Francisco, and the 1934 Longshoremen's strike had conditioned public anxiety toward radical labor. The economics made any disruption potentially ruinous. Stoop labor was best kept cheap and unorganized in the Golden State. The Wobblies were held responsible for one of the deadliest outbreaks of farm labor violence in the state's history, a riot in the town of Wheatland in August 1913. The owners of the Durst Ranch seeking to drive down wages had intentionally advertised for far more pickers than he actually needed. 3,000 men, women, and children descended on the site, eager for work, finding they had been lied to, but believing some work might actually materialize. Many remained camping without adequate food, water, or sanitary facilities, while families were left to sleep on the open ground. When Wobblies organized a rally to protest the situation, the sheriff, his deputies, and the local district attorney arrived by car accompanied by a legion of armed enforcers hired by the growers. Somewhat it was never established who fired a shot into the air, triggering a massive brawl as the workers, furious at the mistreatment, lashed out against the officials and vigilantes with knives, sticks, and fists. The Wheatland riot ended with the district attorney a deputy, and two workers killed, and dozens wounded on both sides. One small victory came in 1933 when Labor Secretary Frances Perkins dispatched her own representative, retired Army General Pelham Glassford, to California. Glassford met with both growers and workers and concluded that the wages were too low. Acting on his own and with questionable legal authority, he told growers, the U.S. government believed for wages for farm workers should be. The Glassford wage, as it became known, was denounced, but it did give growers notice that the federal government was paying at least some attention. When the CIO united with the United Cannery Agriculture, Packing, and Allied Workers of America arrived in the field in the late 1930s, they found the growers willing to use every weapon they could to stymie the union's progress. A series of strikes brought vicious reprisals from a vigilante group calling itself the Associated Farmers of California, who, concealing their identities behind masks, kidnapped strike leaders, subjected some to torture, and drove others out of the area at threat of death. The state authorities blamed the violence on united cannery and arrested several of its leaders, squelching any further efforts at unionization. In 1940, the Associated Farmers would be heard from again, condemning the publication of John Steinbeck's revealing account of life in the harvest fields, The Grapes of Wrath. During World War II, growers were desperate for labor as manpower was drawing out of the picking fields to defense work or military service. Add to this that thousands of Japanese harvesters were sent to internment camps. This led in 1942 to an informal agreement between the United States and Mexico to allow seasonal non-American guest workers, known as brisarios, to be recruited and transported across the borders to assist with the harvest. The agreement stressed that braceros were to work at an arranged location and not stay in the United States in the off-season. Restrictions often ignored by the growers, as was the pay scale signed by the agreement, along with complaints from brisarios of unpaid wages and inhumane treatment. Growers began importing illegal laborers who were far less likely to complain and who, unlike the brisarios, could be shifted from one picking assignment to another. Even after the war, farmers still used cheap bersarios and illegals, undermining unions' efforts to organize. In fact, it was not until 1954 that Washington addressed the problem with President Eisenhower's creation of Operation Wetback, a military effort to locate undocumented Mexicans for deportation. A few years later, the AFL-sponsored Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, AWOC, asked Congress to insist that the approximation of slave labor conditions which the growers have perpetuated will no longer be tolerated by this nation. And in 1964, the Bersario program itself was formally terminated with further agitation from the AFL-CIO and other liberal reform elements that same year. Another blow was dealt hegemony of the growers when the U.S. Supreme Court, in reapportionment cases, ruled that state legislative representation would be based on voting population as opposed to acreage, diminishing the power of rural counties in state assemblies. One reform at work in the California harvest lands beginning in the early 1950s was the Community Service Organization, CSO, whose focus was on creating people power through voter registration efforts. One young Mexican-American Drawn to the CSO's work was Cesar Chavez, a migrant worker who had been born in Arizona in 1827. Chavez and his family had lost their land in the Depression and gone west to join the armies of migrant workers in California's Imperial and San Joaquin Valleys, picking greens, carrots, tomatoes, grapes, prunes, and cotton in a seasonal loop from Delano to San Jose, Sacramento, Fresno, and back again. The family eventually settled in a section of San Jose known as South C. Get out if you can. Cesar, the eldest son, helped his mother keeping the family together after his father was hurt in the fields and could no longer work. He joined the Navy towards the end of World War II, returning to California to marry and raise a family. In 1952, a CSO staffer sought out Chavez finding him and his wife living in Mexican-American neighborhood in Delano. Fred Rose had heard that Chavez had a reputation as an informal community counselor, a man whose judgment was respected by his neighbors. Chavez was initially suspicious of the outsider, but on learning that Ross had advocated for Mexican prisoners beaten by Los Angeles police in an infamous 1951 case known as the Bloody Christmas in which the cops were indicted, Ross was struck by Chavez's burning interest in voter registration as a means of social change. Chavez served CSO for a decade, becoming a paid staff member and eventually the organization's general director. In 1962, when he and a Latino colleague, Dolores Lola Horta, expressed an interest in forming a farmworkers union, the CSO informed them that labor organizing was outside the scope of the group's mission. Venturing off on their own, Chavez and Huarda launched the National Farm Workers Association, the NFWA. Chavez's style of organizing was to dress in workers' attire, speaking plainly, telling the workers their exploitation at the hands of growers was their problem and that only they could end it. He held intimate house meetings where people would be free to talk and occasional larger meetings designed to make those attending to feel empowered by their numbers. Good evening. This is James Napolitano, the International Vice President of the National League of Justice Security Professionals, where members come first. with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.